Hello, and welcome to Frock Flicks, the historical costume movie and TV podcast. I'm your host, Kendra Van Cleave, and today we are here recapping episode four of Outlander. Sarah, who's been doing these uh, recaps with me, is incommunicado. She's at an SCA event where there's literally not even cell phone reception, so she's in the middle of nowhere. But that works out fabulously for us because I have been wanting to invite a special guest to one of our podcasts. And luckily, it worked out perfectly for her to join us. So today we have Brenna Barks here to talk about episode four. And you may remember Brenna because she wrote the fabulous review of the men's costuming in season one of Outlander for the Frockflix blog. Brenna is a dress historian and material culturist who completed her master's in history, theory, and display at the University of Edinburgh in 2010. And part of her research focuses on Scotland and Scottish fashion and Scottish material culture. So as soon as I met Brenna and I heard that, I said, ah, review Outlander. So this is really exciting to have someone uh, who knows specifically about Scotland, which is such a black hole. Okay, so Brenna is also the managing editor at Worn Through, which is a blog um, about academic uh, sort of scholarly study of fashion. She's contributed to an encyclopedia on American fashion history. She's published in Jane Austen Knits 2014 and 2015. Um, And her research focuses on clothing and material culture and their social implications from about 1740 onwards, particularly focusing on Scotland, India and the British Empire. She also has dabbled on the topics of social and cultural history between 1910 and 1940 and on the clothing and culture of Japan. So welcome, Brenna. Hi. (laughs) Yay. We're super excited to have you. I'm super super excited excited to be here. Yay. So I thought we might start just by chatting a little bit about Outlander in general before we get to this specific episode. And you were telling me before we started... uh, recording that you um, obviously you watched the first season and you've read the first book and of course that focuses on Scotland so I don't know if you have any specific thoughts or ideas or anything you want to chat about about the Scotland stuff before we get into France. Hmm well actually you can kind of link the two. One of the interesting things about Dragonfly and Amber is that it takes place during um the lead up to the 45, which is, if anyone knows about the Jacobite rebellions, they know about this one, even though it wasn't actually the largest one. The largest one happened in 1715, but because um, James VII and II sought um, asylum, essentially when he was booted out of England, um, in France, there is actually this very interesting dance between Scotland and France that takes place throughout basically history because you know it was always a way to thumb their nose at Britain either on Scotland or France's part it's like hey we're chumming up with your rival again. (laughs) My understanding is that France was sort of befriended Scotland because they saw them as sort of a backdoor into potentially conquering England um, and uh, assistance for getting into England. And then obviously Scotland uh, uh, adore the country, lived there for six months, but, you know, I think they kind of would take who they could get in this era. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. I do remember actually experiencing a day in Scotland where, um, you know, 
I look out my flat window and it, the sun is shining and it's lovely. So I'm like, oh, go run the errands now. Go run them now. Um, and then by the time I got down the, um, the flight of stairs to the street, it was raining. By the time I got to Prince's Street, it was snowing. And then when I finished my shopping in one shop, which took like five minutes and I came out, it was hailing. I'm so not kidding. In like 15 minutes, that was my day. Absolutely. So I studied abroad as an undergrad in Sterling. And exactly that, the only thing you missed was hail. There should be some hail somewhere in that 15 minute span. But that certainly says a lot about um, the kinds of clothing that was needed in Scotland, particularly in the Highlands. Um, it had to be much more practical versus France, where um, I mean, it's it's somewhat warmer. I'm not saying it's it's not Brazil or anything, um, but <laughs> there is that difference. And of course, I would assume in France, you're spending a whole lot more time inside. Yes. I don't know that at least France around Paris, because I'm venturing outside of my comfort zone here. Um, I, I don't get the impression that they were an agrarian society, whereas um, until, say, Round about the time of the 45 and onward, you know, Scotland was very much an agrarian society. Um, round about the 45, the union was starting to turn in Scotland's favor. And by in Scotland's favor, I mean maybe a handful of merchants in Glasgow. <laughs> um, everybody else was still not so good. Uh, I do think that that's true. And it is actually interesting because watching Jamie in France, he's so out of his element. And it's funny to me because when they introduce him and Claire as Lord and Lady Brock Turok, you know, <laughs> it's so not, it's funny because they're not my vision of aristocrats, even though they've dressed up nicely here. I mean, Jamie, you know, on a usual day in Scotland is he's out working with the horses, he's out working with the people, he's doing all of that. He's certainly not sitting, you know, at a tea party playing chess, doing all the stuff that's currently driving him crazy. Um, so it's such a different society, you know, just looking at the upper echelons, because usually you think the upper echelons are the people with their feet up, but it doesn't seem like it in Scotland. Yes. Um, I mean, like, you do have, okay, there's this wonderful romantic myth about the clan and the laird and all of that and i'm starting to slip into a brogue i do apologize <laughs> but um you know it the way i see it is okay sir walter scott was um the early 19th century's version of julian fellows um here is this beautiful romantic version of what we want the past to have been and there is no way it was ever that um, because it's like okay you have these accounts of lairds in quotations um and uh, they were the lord of the manor you know uh but you know they're not protecting their people or anything like that it, you know you didn't pay the rent here's this medieval punishment and if you survive it for the day okay i'll forgive you you know um and so it's not necessarily this, you know, camaraderie that we like to envision, but it that doesn't mean that that camaraderie didn't exist everywhere. It's like to paint all of them with one brush, either as medieval torturer or as heroic um, romantic figure is inaccurate. Um, but it was very, it's not as congenial an environment as we just said, as say, France is, um, you know, they were prescribing, oh, you have weak lungs, you need to go to France, 
type of thing, even into you know the 20th century. And you have this sort of give and take because here's Scotland, they're, they're very poor, they're very agrarian, but they have possibly the highest literacy rate of anywhere in the world, or at least in the European world at the time. You know, I think the one of the estimates is that around about 1740s, it was 75% of the people could read. And so you have this interesting tug and pull where it's like they can be very, I suppose, crude by the French aristocratic standards, but they're probably actually better educated. Um, that's why, you know, Jamie can just go off to France because he probably does speak French. Um, and France does... It both does and doesn't take Scotland seriously. They've been looking, as you said, at Scotland as the back door into England for years. That's why Mary, Queen of Scots, wasn't Scottish. She was really French. She'd been living there since she was three. <laughs> and so, and yet, you know, the Scots used France for, you know, money, education. Oh, I've gotten on the wrong side of, you know, Black Jack Randall. I need to run away. That was actually kind of what could happen. I think it wasn't until the 20th century that this law in France, that if you were Scottish, you also had French citizenship, was, um, you know, taken off the books, as it were. The oldest written word for Scotland, Alba, it exists and survives in France because, um, you know, it was a French diplomat who happened to have a copy and escaped, where, and then, you know, the English came in and or the Scots were fighting amongst themselves, which happened as much as they fought the English. So um, it is this very interesting dichotomy because it's like they have this symbiotic relationship and yet they're so completely different. <laughs> so I realize I do have one costume related question uh, related to Scotland. And this is um, based on a question a reader asked me that I wasn't entirely sure how to answer. And that has to do with, of course, the Scotsman and their kilts, but mm -hmm. why the kilts hang down and back. And now, you know, my response was kind of, well, because that's how they wore them. But I thought maybe it might be interesting if you talked a little bit about the great kilt and um, what it was and how it was put together and different from the modern kilt. And I don't know if you know anything, but, you know, just looking at this episode, Murtaugh has that where the, the mm -hmm. back is draped down longer. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. Yes. Um, I've actually, you know, I've been looking at all of the stills and everything, and I really love that they did that. And I just, I love, it's like, okay, Murtaugh was cranky enough when he was in Scotland. And now that he's in France, <laughs> I'm like, I think I'm gonna rupture something anytime he comes on screen because I'm laughing so hard. Um, but what you're actually looking at there is, um, that would essentially be their plaid. Um, in Scottish terminology, tartan is the pattern and plaid is just any large width of fabric. It can be a blanket, it can be the other side, it can be um, the great kilt. I'm not going to try and pronounce the Gaelic because that's just, that would be cruel to all Gaelic speakers everywhere. Um, but basically what its origins are, a very large piece of fabric that's laid out on the floor and then pleated and you lie down on it and you wrap um, it around yourself and um, you tie a belt. And then what you have is kind of this all intents and purposes um, garments because the kilt actually, the way it falls is it's above the heather and the bracken, which can and will um, 
and tear up your clothing. I tested this unintentionally by falling in it. <laughs> but, um, and so you, it, in a way, that's part of the reason why it was so hard for anybody to get into the Highlands, because you have the kilts, and they can run away, whereas the English who are wearing their trousers or their trues are getting, you know, stuck and mired in all of this um, unfriendly vegetation. Nothing about this country is friendly, <laughs> except maybe the people. But um, at the same time, you know, it's cold. And so that long piece that would hang down the back, in ceremonial, you pull it up over the top or you wrap it around and then um, put it across your chest diagonally. Um, and you put the brooch on there and it's all very pretty. If you're not wearing it as, you know, sort of decoration where it's across your chest with the pin or tucked into your belt or anything like that, you pull it up over your head and it acts as a cloak umbrella you can wrap it around yourself to keep warm um if you pay attention in a lot of the season one episodes when they're out in the rain you know jamie is usually doing that because he doesn't have a proper frock coat or anything like that um because you know scotland was very poor and so this might be the only set of clothing that someone owns and they're not going to have a full suit like we envision scottish dress now this is what they have and this is how they keep warm. There are even funerary accounts of um, people after Culloden who you suspect they let them wear it anyway because you couldn't let them go around naked. Um, <laughs> and so they're buried in this and they don't bother to sell the clothing or anything because it's all they wore. It's the only thing they owned and you really don't want it afterwards. So it, it's kind of your all intents and purposes, umbrella, raincoat, overcoat, everything and then when you're not using it that way it can just drop down the back and one of the ways that the Scots did adapt it to the 1740s dress of the waistcoat and um, the frock coat was you just left it hanging down the back and put the waistcoat and the coat over the top as you see Murtaugh wearing and I think in one of the preview stills uh, Jamie wore it that way too. One other question for you and because there's been a a slow but steady debate going on, um, I think on, on the review that you did, um, mm -hmm. about whether or not kilts, okay, so kilts were outlawed after the 45 rising, but whether or not that was enforced. Um, that one's hard to say. I, I did see that comment, but life has intervened and I haven't gotten to weigh in, so I'll do so now. Um, you know, the person who wrote the, um, the the comment cited paintings, and that is always, um, that's not solid ground ever, because one, a lot of the, if you look at a lot of the paintings of tar quote unquote tartan that survive from that time period, they don't look anything like tartan, which is one of two things. Either the painter didn't know what they were looking at or they were describing something that had, they were painting something that had been described to them rather than something that they were seeing, which was more often not what they were doing. You also have to look at with those paintings, you have to look at the status of the person being painted. Um, I've just blanked on the name of a very famous one, but um, he was a staunch Hanoverian. Um, Campbell, his last name's Campbell. Um, but you know he was a staunch Hanoverian and he was a government you know employee type of thing and by government I do mean 
down in London, um, the various Georges. I can't remember which one we were on at that point. But, and so they would get more leeway. And there's also a lot of evidence um, that's come to light recently that um, Edinburgh women, after the 1746 ban, they would never have worn tartan in their lives, but then once it was banned and kind of um, you know scandalous, these are the women who are visiting the assembly rooms and things. So this is not your average Scottish woman. They would wear it in their evening gowns and sort of things. And that's why you get the really hideous you know, fashion tartans, as it was. Um, you know, all of the colors in the world, we will put them here. <laughs> <laughs> And, but at the same time, you know, it's not like today where you could just, you know, pick up the phone or use a radio or something like that. And so I imagine that how it was enforced varied depending on who was in charge. You know, I'm sure, you know, there are good cops, bad cops type of thing. But there's also probably a certain amount of practicality to it. Um, I was describing the funerary records of, um, you know, essentially Highlanders who'd probably come down to the lowlands to work as cattle um, herders or ranchers or that's, well, basically the 18th century equivalent of ranchers. And so, you know, if it's their only clothing and they don't make any money, you're not going to say, well, you have to be naked in Scotland because we've banned this. Uh, and so it's like, the, it's very difficult to say, oh, this is how it was. But it it did actually affect the way, you know, people wore things. As I said, people who never have worn tartan were wearing it because it was now scandalous and forbidden and all of those things. And then you had people who, you know, couldn't pass on a great kilt or a plaid or something to their families or they hid them in chests or, you know, they wore them at weddings and that sort of thing rather than wearing them the way they had done before. And it's it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know if we'll ever know because so much is lost to history and we're not dealing with aristocrats. You know, it's not like that wonderful 17th century gown that was found in the shipwreck where, you know, cause it's like posh people get to travel. <laughs> and so of course their stuff might be saved at the bottom of the sea, but you know, the average person, not so much. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you can look at the same thing today. Is a working class woman going to pass down her wedding dress? I mean, maybe. Um, but historically, probably not. I would also wonder if some of those paintings aren't necessarily documentary paintings, but they're making a statement, a political mm -hmm. statement. Oh, we're showing plaid in this painting. That doesn't mean I'm walking down the street in it. And it could also be something, a painting that's not meant to be exhibited. I mean, think of most paintings, we think of them now as, you know, oh, you can see it anywhere because it's online, it's in books, all of that. At that time, it was hanging in somebody's dining room, maybe, but also maybe it was hanging in the, you know, in their private study where nobody would ever see it. Exactly. And for example, the the one I was referencing earlier, um, Lord Campbell, he, you know, it. there are... You know, people have read that particular painting several different ways because it did hang in his house. You know, it wasn't for public, you know, display as it were. And so it's like, okay, was he making a subtle, okay, I'm playing the game and doing what this, what the Hanoverians want so that I can keep my culture? 
Or was he saying, the, since I knew how to play the game, I can wear this and you can't, you know, Brooklyn cheer type of thing. And, um, you know, it's, you can usually tell when they were staring at actual tartan and when they weren't. Um, there's a Ramsey painting of Flora MacDonald, or is it Rayburn? Ugh, I'm terrible with remembering names and dates. But um, he, and if you compare the Ramsey painting of Flora MacDonald with the more popular ones, the Ramsey one is more accurate to how Tartan would look because Ramsey was a Highlander. He may have grown up and gone to London and Paris and all of those things to become a posh people's portrait painter. But, um, he still knew at least what it was supposed to look like. And so whether he was painting an actual garment or not, it has a real feel. Whereas the more famous portraits of Flora MacDonald, it's just, it looks quite frankly like Buffalo plaid. And um, it's like, and they're doing that because she's Flora MacDonald and she dressed Bonnie Prince Charlie as her maid and rode him over the sea to sky. Um, and then it's like, you start to see, uh, Round about, or during the um, five months that um, Charles Stewart was on the run from the Butcher of Cumberland, you you see these wanted posters that almost look like Harlequin costumes. I swear, <laughs> because they're like, oh, he's Scottish, and they wear this this tartan thing. And you look at it, and it doesn't look anything like tartan. It looks like a Harlequin costume <laughs> out of the Commedia dell'arte which is apropos since he was born in Italy, but you know, it's, you know, it's like they, it's like sometimes they may not have even known what they were looking for to police. Who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that makes me think, um, I mean, are you enjoying the characterization of Bonnie Prince Charlie? Because to me, he's like the world's, okay, maybe not the world's biggest twit, but he's on my like top five list. And I definitely <laughs> feel like they're, they're getting that in this characterization of him. Um, I, I'm, I think that's a little apropos because I mean, he was 25. He'd been raised since birth to believe that he was the rightful King of England. Um, the Jacobite court abroad is extremely fascinating because it's like, okay, they were, it, it's a full court. You know, you have a king and a queen and all of their maids, and you even have, you know, artisans, portrait painters, you know, cooks, etc., and tutors for the children when there are children and palaces and all of that. And yet they don't have a country, <laughs> you know. Um, when it is inconvenient for the King of France to have them in France, they're kicked out and sent to Italy and the Pope harbors them. And then, you know, when Louis XV is trying to stretch his, you know, muscles with, um, with England, he leaves um, James VIII and III, as they called him after death, um, and... It, he leaves him in Italy, but he brings the son to Paris as a way to say, well, I'm not actually favoring the guy you don't like. It's just his kid. And so there's all of this political context. And Bonnie Prince Charlie was, ex see, the thing I have a problem with with making him a bit of a twit is that he was so, he was very charismatic. And I'm not getting that at all. Yeah, I don't see the Bonnie, you know? No. <laughs> And both boys were very, very handsome because his um, 
his younger brother Henry ended up it's like if you look at the paintings of him because he ended up becoming a high cardinal in the um, Catholic Church and it's you look at him you go oh father what a waste you know <laughs> in some ways he was way more handsome than Charlie was and so it's like you know I'm one I'm I'm not getting handsome and I'm not getting charming yeah, that is true. I mean, again, the Bonnie's got to come from somewhere and he's, you know, he had to got to inspire people beyond just sort of God wants me to be, you know. Yes, especially so. since, you know, they had several uprisings. I mean, James the seventh and second had tried to retake his throne in seven, in 1689. And that was sort of the first Jacobite battle. Um, and it took place in Ireland, and Ireland has never recovered. Um, and then, you know, they have the first sort of uprising in 1708 because um, the Union was very unpopular in Scotland, but it was very popular with the nobles and the lords in Scotland because they'd lost all of their money in Darien, and this was a way to get it back. Um, and... Then, you know, in 1715, you have um, the biggest of the uprisings with like maybe 10,000 troops coming to meet um, Bonnie Prince Charlie's father, James the Eighth, as you were. And he, you know, that one kind of just became a scuffle, but he did manage to, despite the fact that Bonnie Prince Charles' father was as far from charismatic as you could get. He was a born bureaucrat. Um, you know, even though he wasn't particularly charming and alluring or anything, he got 10,000 people to rise up and it fizzled out. And so by about, you know, 30 years later in 1745, you know, the, the gusto wasn't quite there, but the person of Bonnie Prince Charlie brought him there, and it, you know, it, it was essentially the myth overtook the man, as happens. And so I'm like sitting here staring at this person on screen, and I'm like, okay, you know, it's like spoiler alert. Uh, Jamie decides to fight in Culloden because he has met and been charmed by Bonnie Prince Charlie, and I'm not getting it. <laughs> well. I I actually think it's actually, it's a little different. It's that his, oh, okay. men, his men are going to fight. And so he's going to stand with them. But no, oh, I, I do think that, that this guy, the actor that they've cast and the way they're doing it, maybe might work a little bit better for post the 45 rebellion. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So let's start talking about this specific episode. I mean, we touched on that a little bit with Murtaugh's kilt, but let's get a little bit more specific. Um, so. The episode starts off in um, at Versailles with Jamie playing chess with the finance minister and then the Comte Saint-Germain, we think, attempting to poison Claire. What did you think about the Claire's brown dress with the turquoise? I've never seen turquoise as in the stone used in the 18th century. I mean, in that way, other than sort of like for Turkish stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, in fact, the reason it is called turquoise is because turquoise in French is Turkish. Um, so yeah, I've I've never seen turquoise used that way. Um, 
and I am completely outside my element because this is women's wear, but it, <laughs> I'm like, it's a girl. Um, Meanwhile, I'm thinking boys, who cares about boys? Boys, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, oh, look, look what Jamie's wearing. He does not have nearly enough lace. Um, <laughs> yes, talk about the lace. Well, okay. I, and I suppose this is this is something that crossed my mind um, earlier when I was looking at the Rockflix recaps for the first three episodes was because I was like, where is the lace? Where is my lace? Um, and I I see that it, it's like it actually ties into what we started out with, with, you know, here's Jamie, who is a laird, but he's also a farmer type of thing. And he lands in the French court and he's like, okay, the satin I will do. The lace is too far. You know, no, we're not going there. Type of thing. So you're like, okay, how, is, how much of this is just taking into account? He might have personal preferences. If Clara gets a new look, bar suit, couture meets 18th century gown, why can't he say no lace? But yeah, there is a sad, sad lack of lace in the men's wear. <laughs> yes. I do think it, it makes sense character wise for Jamie. I mean, he really is, uh, I don't, out of his element, not in the sense that he's bad at this, but he just really doesn't like this, this world. So that makes sense to me. Uh, I'm just looking at a, at the, um, an in-depth screen or a detailed screen cap of Claire's dress. And, um, the detailing looks, you know, correct, but yeah, the stones, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> yeah, and also the the sheer ruffly layer bits on the stomacher and petticoat. I mean, nothing is a crisis. It's just always, to me, interesting to note. Meanwhile, um, I do like what Jamie's wearing. It's kind of a toned down version of his fancy outfit that he's going to wear later in this episode, and he wore in a previous episode, which is black and mm -hmm. silver and embroidered, and I love that. And then I'm just like so team Calm Saint-Germain. Um, <laughs> any guy who's, who's tall, going to wear a wig and has dark eyebrows and is kind of ominous, I'm so down with. But I love the, the, the fabrics he's got with the two different blue, um, some sort of woven pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and I love the, the, it's like, the thing I love about the French court at this time period is that it's this interesting mix of, um, you know, when the 1740s is really a wonderful period for, you know, menswear, as it were, of, um, you know, foofiness. <laughs> it's not as extreme as you get under Louis the Sixteenth, where, you know, it's a good thing they didn't have electric lights because you might go blind with all of the doodads and the gilts and the sparkles. But, uh, and so it's a little bit more, it's a little darker, but then you have these really full, um, you know, skirts to the frock coats and things. And I do, I just, I love, it's like, there's the lace, there it is. Um, but also I like the mixture of the, of the pattern fabrics because that is absolutely what, they could do because you were wearing your wealth and going look what I can afford can you do this <laughs> um it is interesting that you mentioned the fullness of the frock coats um do these seem full enough to you because to me they seem I mean they're not the cutaway of the Louis the 16th but they don't seem like they have all of the pleats and stuff in there no um you know at the back um you know there's supposed to be like at least I don't know five pleats per little button there right over the tuchus. Um, 
And it, it's, you know, sometimes this, you would feel like the back of those men's coats would actually, um, you know, rival the pannier, as it were. It's like, look, they match. Um, and it's like, okay, it, I, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why this could be happening, but I'm just like, no, it's not as foofy as I want it to be. <laughs> We did an interview with Terry Dresbach, the costume designer, and she talked about a lot of the limitations that they have. I like to just still, uh, you know, so that's a given that they have yes. limitations. I still like to talk about what, you know, is and isn't historically accurate just because I find it interesting, not because I'm saying it because I'm judging. And that is another thing I do think we haven't seen is the really wide panniers, um, which I know in See, uh, it's funny because my, my expertise really is in um, French 18th century dress, but more after about 1760. But my understanding mm -hmm. is that this was the era of the widest panniers for women. Um, and they're certainly not doing that. But that's a whole lot more fabric to cover them. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I, I knew you weren't doing the judgment thing. I was just I, I have that the interview with Terry bookmarked to read later because it's it's very in-depth, which is good, but, um, you know, life. And so it's one of those things where I was like, I was kind of like, you just interviewed her. You'll know. You'll answer my question. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I'm like, it's not as pleated and full in the skirt as you would like. And the panier are definitely not 1740s. So I'm, I know that there have been interviews with um, the actress who plays Claire talking about how she has to walk sideways into rooms and everything. And I was like, yeah, no, I've, I've read translations of the accounts of a young woman who was married around about this time. And she was sort of lower aristocracy. And so her wedding gown was her court presentation gown. And she's sitting there with the wig and the pun, the epic panier of the 1740s and the three inch heels having to do this very, very deep bow to the floor before the king and you know in her diary talking about how she's really not sure if she's going to be able to stand up you know and so yeah we're we're not getting the full glory of 1740s width as it were yeah absolutely and still um you know uh we've we uh another thing Terry mentioned in the interview is um various things that went wrong. That means no sort of Frances backs, although actually we get a few of those um, in this episode, but so the fitted backs issue still, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, moving on, um, uh, Jamie and Claire have a, a, I guess it's a chat when she's recovering from being poisoned um, and he takes his coat off and you really get a nice view of his waistcoat, um, which I really like. I mean, mostly because I mean, silver or white and black. I mean, you just can't go wrong with that. Um, and it's nice too, that you can see the back, you can see where it's laced, um, uh, which of course would provide adjustability. So if you put on a few pounds or lost a few, you could still keep wearing the same waistcoat. Did you like that waistcoat? Oh, I, I, I really love this waistcoat. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm really liking a lot of the, them that they have Jamie in this season. Um, because it's often kind of overlooked because everyone is looking at the frock coat, but the waistcoat was really a huge part of menswear. Um, and I, I love if I, as I look at like some of the, the screen cap um, details here, it's like it. 
I can't tell if it's a quilted waistcoat as well or if that's just the pattern because that was another way that they would deal with the fact that they are in Northern Europe is that they would have quilted, you know, gowns, they would have quilted waistcoats, they would have quilted banyans and everything. And I just, I really love the detail on these waistcoats because you've got the embroidery and the, it's on the pockets and they do, they have all the little details, like you said, like, you know, being uh, like lacing up the back because, you know, they did live to eat and <laughs> that takes its toll. Yes, absolutely. So then a little further on, Claire wears a sort of Brunswicky, um, a hooded hooded jacket with a petticoat. And this is the purple one that's I'm now I can't tell if it's um, printed or embroidered. I almost think it's both where the, the base fabric of the dress is printed with sort of a magenta and then they've added embroidery along the front um, edges uh, and the hood. Um, I think it's beautiful, um, mm -hmm. but I think there's no way in hell that they could have gotten that color dye in this era. No. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's, it, it's beautiful. I love the combination, but um, yeah, I'm not seeing magenta in 1743. No, that's like aniline dyes, which come around in what, 1860s, 1870s is when you really start getting those electric colors. So one exactly. of the things I just noticed about this, um, and I'll show uh, screen caps on our blog post, um, is that when she's outside, okay, so backing up, so the jacket is this, I think, printed fabric, um, a silk, and then they, she has a solid silk petticoat. And when she's outside, the colors um, look good together. But then when she's inside Maitre Raymond's shop, um, mm -hmm. something in the lighting changes. And then the petticoat is not at all the same shade. And it's, I mean, it's not a crisis. They don't clash. But it just bugs me that they're not the same shade. So I know. I was like, I thought, it's like, because I... I'd forgotten that they looked like that outside. And so I'm sitting here going, wait a second. That is that, is that my computer screen or is that the color that it is? <laughs> I think it's just a lighting change. Yeah. But yeah, on the, on the magenta, the reason it is called fuchsia is because it was named after someone named Fuchs. Oh. So if we can name, if, if it has someone's name in it, it's probably not 18th century. <laughs> right. Probably not. Um, and then I don't know if you want to chat at all about Maitre Raymond's waistcoat. He keeps wearing the same one. We've talked about it in previous uh, recaps and podcasts. And it's clearly to show that he's mystical. It's got all this embroidery with all these magical symbols and stuff on it. Oh, yes. I was hoping we'd get to talk about this. Um, I also like that it has, that you get to see one that has sleeves. Because we're so used to the modern um, waistcoat vest, you know, um, and then you do, you see Jamie's and this other thing, but no, they really did have versions that had sleeves. Again, Northern Europe, the, the weather is actively trying to kill you. Um, but I, I love, I love it because I think it fits his character because there was this sort of, you know, we're dealing with the enlightenment. And so there's this weird juxtaposition of occultism and superstition and reason and science and all of these things. And so I love this. It's like he's advertising his, you know, 
intellectualism and you know mystery and uh, you know magic as it were yes i think right there. Of- when you walk in the shop there it is <laughs> yes i do think that probably because um you know this whole that obviously all of these things come from the book and i do think that diana gabaldon was drawing on the affair of the poisons which was something that happened in um the late 17th century um there was this famous Parisian poisoner, this woman, and I can't remember her name. Um, I'll find it and post a link in our blog, blog recap anyway. But there was this huge scandal that came out about whether or not people were trying to poison other people and it implicated one of the king's mistresses. So it got to be this really big deal. Um, and I think that she's sort of drawing on that um, that story. Yeah, um, I didn't know about that. I'm going to have to go look that up because... That would... Madame, Madame Voisin, V-O-I-S-I-N, I think was her name. Anyway, random factoid. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so should we move on now to the scene where um, Claire hangs out with uh, Louise, her froofy friend, and um, Mary Hawkins, the English girl? Yes. This is another one of Claire's dresses. We've seen a couple of these that are very sort of posing gown-esque. And I thought it was interesting that it has that little cut down um, mm-hmm. at the neckline, which I think is reminiscent of the famous red dress from two episodes ago. It's not, I mean, I think it's perfectly nice. It's not terribly historical to me. And so I kind mm-hmm. of, my eyes just kind of want to skip past it. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm looking, looking to Louise, Louise in the back. Yeah, and I thought her dress was really nice. I mean, again, you can we've said this before, but you can never go wrong with silk satin. And I thought it was interesting how they made the trim is clearly a fabric trim that's sort of like a coppery, bronzy color and then that same blue. Um, so it's obviously a different fabric, but I thought that that was a nice effect, um, how they sort of coordinated those two. Yes, that's gorgeous. And... Um... You know, I'm, I like that, you know, what I really do like is that, um, you know, the foofy silk organza ruffles earlier aside is that they do seem to actually be mimicking um, the patterning that women would put on their stomachers and the edge of the the gown and that, you know, and then the petticoat would have it, etc. Because um, you do get that a lot in the court gowns. Uh, I don't know the general dresses like that they've been doing in that style, like this blue one on Louise and also the, the red one she wears to dinner later. I mean, from the front, I'd give them a solid a minus. It's just mm-hmm. badly the back. They don't have the Frances pleats. I did think it was interesting that Mary Hawkins um, in this scene, the sweet little English girl, first mm-hmm. off, she's wearing one of those derpy English caps, which totally accurate. And I hate because they just make you look like, uh, not even Little Miss Muffet. Little, they make you look like Little Miss Pris. <laughs> or like the little foofy things that they used to put on the edge of um, like drumsticks in the 1950s. Yes, absolutely. That comes immediately to mind. <laughs> yeah. But I thought her jacket was really cute and I got excited because it does actually have the pleats in back that you would see on a pet and lair, which is a shortened version of the robe a la Francaise or sack back gown. But um, I did notice at one point she turns and the, the pleats are separate 
from the gown in back, which is, we talked about this before, um, This that makes it a like late 1770s, very un relatively mm -hmm. unusual style, but whatever. Um, just a little, a little quibble, but otherwise thought her outfit was great and perfect to her character. Yes, I, I was like from the front, I'm in love with this jacket. It's, it's gorgeous. And it, I, I do like sort of this tableau though, noticing the sleeves on um, Claire's posing gown, as it were, I'm like, I don't know what's going on there. Um, it just but, seems, it seems very, posing gown, costumey, and I mean, it's something you see in portraits, but it's not something people wore. It's something that, oh, hey, I'm wearing this fun, antique or Asian-y dress to get painted in. Yes, or, you know, something that they might wear to masquerades, because they did, they loved masquerades, you know. Yes, especially um, in this era. But I, I do like the range of, of the gowns that we are seeing, because it's like, okay, you've got you know, the skirt and the jacket with the fichu, and then you've got the proper court gown. And so it's it's nice because so often in period, you do tend to see it's like everyone's a cookie cutter. And it's like, no, no one is a cookie cutter. <laughs> yeah, it is a good example. Um, and it's something, something I quibble with looking at something like War and Peace, the recent version that came out where they, they put certain characters that they wanted to distinguish their characteristics in completely ludicrous clothes in order to say she's different. But here, you know, with some min very minor quibbles, you can very clearly see the differences between these two, three characters. You know, Mary mm -hmm. Hawkins is very sweet and proper and covered up and innocent. And Louise is very rich and luxe and, um, a little bit sexy and all of that. And then Claire is very sort of elegant yet practical. You know, she mm -hmm. doesn't have much proof. Um, she's not wearing all of the the frills and stuff that Louise is, and she's not covered up with the fichu in the cap and all that like Mary is. Yes. Okay, so then we have the big fight between Jamie and Claire, where I, I feel like in the book, because um, I'm a big fan of the books. In the books, I feel like this must have made a whole lot more sense than it did here. Um, because, it, yeah, I'm team Claire, at least on the sense of you should not be going to a whorehouse and, and coming back with bites on your thighs and telling me about 69ing. That being said, I also think that Claire is an idiot because her husband has been brutally raped. And the idea that, I don't know, I feel like, I get that she's trying to get him to communicate with her, but I mean, let's cut the guy some slack. Yeah, he will have some issues about sex for a while, okay? Uh, but Jamie does this all in a shirt. Um, and I thought it was funny. They always very carefully framed him so he didn't get any dangly bits because I just know that right down there at the hem, there's gotta be occasionally something fun happening. <laughs> exactly um they did that with season one too where you're like oh well well placed you know um but it's just it's like yeah um i i know that they did have the big billowy shirt thing but they weren't that long <laughs> they yeah. weren't night shirts <laughs> yeah but um well they were long enough because frequently men didn't wear what we would consider separate underwear but they would tuck their shirt oh down into their crotch, right, to sort of create um, a protective layer between their bits and their pants. As Yes, very good. Um, and it's, 
Yeah, um, there are a lot of things. I don't know what's going on with like the editing on um, on this season because it's like even on one of the trailers, I was sitting there staring at it almost stupefied because I'm like, okay, I I haven't actually read Dragonfly and Amber, but I've read enough of the spoilers after having finished book one to know what's happening, and I'm confused. <laughs> you know. <laughs> When yeah. I'm lost yeah. watching this, watching the trailer, someone someone needs to work on their editing skills. So Bonnie Prince Charlie turns up in the middle of the night, tromping across across the roof from his lover's house, and this is the first time we've seen him without a wig. And I will say, he is much cuter with a wig on. Um, it's pretty hard to tell what he's wearing, other than it's sort of blue and silver, and the waistcoat has embroidery on it. They are doing the cravat lace bib thing, which annoys me, but that's such a common sort of theatrical trope um, mm -hmm. that I feel like I can't get too bent out of shape about it. Yeah, and I'm like, is it raining outside? What's going on here? I think so, but just the guy needs to stick with a wig because he's much cuter in a wig. Yeah, and I'm like, I thought Jamie and Marta's hair was sad. This is worse. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Jamie has been going back and forth. I actually thought in the fight scene, his hair didn't look too bad. It, it was kind of sort of frizzed up. It had some poof to it. It seems to look better when it's poofy. Yes, but, you know, then they were about to um, have the naughty bits, and then it, his hair always looks good for those, so maybe it was just one big long shoot. I don't know. Connie Prince Charlie, like, that's like that strikes me. But yeah, you're right. This is very much after 1746. You know, it's like the pouting and the sulking. Yeah, yeah that's good yeah. afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and the kind of sort of not being good at what you're supposed to be good at, which is being a royal figure and inspiring people. I mean, there's nothing inspirational about his sort of drowned rat look. But I also think that they're trying to show this is the, the guy behind the curtain, you know. Mm-hmm. All right, so then we have their, they've decided to do the big dinner, but on the day of, Claire needs to go to the hospital that she's volunteering at, um, and she wears what is probably so far my favorite outfit of the season, and it's a Brunswick, um, and a Brunswick was a German-style uh, traveling gown um, that was essentially like the, the robe à la française or sack back, but it was cut off at the hip like a pet and lair, which is a jacket version. But um, it has a hood and it actually usually has um, uh, a lower sleeve, but they're sort of doing that with mitts. Anyway, this is the first time we've actually seen a proper française back with the big pleats and it made me super happy. Um, and I loved the ruching on it, and I loved the hood, and it just it just made the little fashion historian in me happy to finally see one outfit that I was like, yes, they nailed it. They absolutely yeah. nailed it on that one. And it's quite one to nail it on because the Brunswick is, you know, okay, not that any of these are easy to make. You know, that's the whole point of a court gown. But it's, you know, all of those little details and to do it color on color is almost more difficult than when you're dealing with a contrasting trim. So, you know, it's like of all the pieces to nail dead on, this this was the one. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Um, and I just think, I mean, they did exactly what you did in the 18th century, which was use the same fabric as the... Uh, trimming, but to do something interesting with it, and here they've sort of gathered it up and ruched in this sort of poofy strips. Um, 
and it creates a visual interest. So you don't have to have, you know, 20 pounds of lace or whatever um, to make it work. And then, but then at the same time, I found Mary's dress in this just sort of very clunky. I, and then I can't figure out what it is about it. It's probably just that it's linen. And I don't know, there's something about the, the blue linen with the cream lace that just, for me, aesthetically, nothing to do with historically. I just don't love it. Um, but it's not a crisis or anything. No, it, it just, it kind of smacks of, you know, playing peasant or something. And I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's an awkward style. You know, it's yeah. like, oh, we randomly have lace sticking out here and here. And I'm like, okay, I know I said I wanted lace, but not like this. <laughs> yeah, it just, there's something about maybe, and also how the lace is under the straps across the bodice front. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Although this could be, I got to look, um, find the the right picture to be sure this may be one of the few dresses that actually has pleated cuffs instead of um engagements the sleeve ruffles which are the the scallopy um mm -hmm. multi-layered ruffles at the uh elbow and in this era um i i don't even know i mean engagements sleeve ruffles may have just been coming in but we should be seeing more of the pleated cuffs um so that does make me happy and I liked her mm -hmm. hat. I thought it was cute, her little flip up in back hat. Oh, I love them. I love the hats. They're just wonderful. Yeah. So I'm guessing you might want to talk about what Murtaugh and Fergus are wearing. Yes. Um, I, I love that we have um, a child because um, children's wear is, it's not often talked about and probably because not a lot of it, you know, survives. We're definitely still getting more of the range again. It's like, okay, I was talking about it with um, Mary before and um, Louise and Claire, but now with um, Murta and Fergus, we're dealing with um, kind of the range of menswear because we've been looking at, um, you know, the, the aristocrats in France. And now we're kind of seeing what people a little bit lower down on the pecking order wear. And it's it's interesting because it's like you get some really good details like um, the the using a similar color fabric, um, but it's I think it looks like it's suede um, to match the waistcoat that Murta is wearing on the on the collar, because you know it would make sense that you know your servant is wearing something a little bit farther behind the times than you are. Um, you know, and so Jamie's wearing the one that is collarless and up to date. And then Fergus and Murtaugh both have the ones that have collars. And, you know, they're these little um, ways of reinforcing the, um, the parts of the jacket that are going to get the most wear, the edges of the collar, the, um, the edges of the, albeit, you know, for show buttons on the, on the um, coat. And, you know, just to give it a little bit of something, since they can't afford the, um, the embroidery or the, or the silk, and actually I don't think Marta would take it if he could, but just these little touches that they, they reinforce the fabric, but they also, you know, strength, but they also give it just a little bit of interest instead of just all being one color. It also looks like the, the cuffs uh, on the coat are also suede. The leather is a little, or suede, whichever one it is, is a little bit worn. And it's just, it's a nice, it's a nice touch. And in this high-res image, it's, 
yeah, they're both the same material. Um, and I like that both the, the waistcoat and the um, frock coat are both a little bit of a nubby fabric. I would assume it's wool, although my first thought was linen, but wool would be a little bit more practical. Um, but again, you know, they're showing character differences. Yeah, Murtaugh would die before he would wear silk. Well, I guess he probably did wear silk when they went to Versailles, but you know he hated it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um, although he's not wearing a hat in these outdoor scenes. Is that a problem in this well, era? Since he's having sort of a, um, a casual conversation with um, Fergus, it's not so bad. But yeah, they would actually normally wear their hats because this is still an era where they might where things might be flung out of windows and you don't want them landing on your head. Um, so I, it's like I'm sure there's a practical reason for them not wearing the hats, but the ladies get all kinds of lovely hats. I, I have yet to see any of the men wearing hats, and it makes me very sad. Because this is, of course, the era of the tricorn for men, um, you know, and so you would think we would see a bit of those. But, yeah, compared to in Scotland, they did a really good job of having different hats on the men. But you're right. We haven't really seen much of that at all here in France. Of course, it doesn't make sense in an indoor scene. But for an outdoor scene, I mean, Murtaugh then, you know, they all walk home. And I think he's not wearing a hat for any of that. Exactly. And I mean, you know, it's like even if he didn't have the tricorn, it's like where's his, um, you know, the where are the blue knit caps that they all had, the blue, you know, beret style tams that they all had in season one? It's like, he did, did he leave it on the boat? Where did it go? Um, and, you know, you do, you have these glorious tricorn hats and, you know, they're really, really wonderful. And we know audiences will, you know, happily see them because, you know, Master and Commander did just fine. <laughs> Yeah. And so then um, we get the big dinner scene, which made me happy as they just kept introducing yet another couple. Um, of course, that's intercut with the horrible scene of poor, you know, Mary getting raped and her and Claire Murtaugh being attacked. Um, but they're still wearing the same stuff. So whatever, moving on from that tragedy. Um, so Jamie is wearing the same um, waistcoat and uh, embroidered waistcoat and then black satin uh, frock coat that he wore in the last episode um, and I continue to adore it and anyway I just loved that you know here was couple after couple um, and I got to peer at all of their outfits and really it was a whole lot of shiny and pretty minus uh, the need for some Frances backs yes and um, you know I'm I'm just opened the um, one of the screen caps and um, I think it's Louise and like the red dress and the man accompanying her also has a red jacket on. And I love that they have, you know, cause they would do things like match, if not the same fabric, then, you know, same colors because it would attract attention. Oh, look, they can afford two luxurious fabrics in this same really expensive dye. Looking at the edges of the faux button pockets, the tassels that are hanging off of the, the gold braid and whatever that thing is at his neck i'm sure it's a cravat but i'm like okay there there's my lace i said i wanted it um and i think he ha he has a fur collar and fur trim on his cuffs it's interesting yes. his outfit seems or his jacket at least seems very sort of german or turkish you know nod in the styling and that's beautiful yes and it's it's 
it's very much appropriate for this time period because while most of the time it was the sort of dark colors like what Jamie is wearing, um, you did still occasionally have these little flourishes because that whole idea that this is for men and this is for women didn't exist yet in the aristocracy. And so it's like, it's this perfect example of how over the top menswear could be at this time period. I mean, the jacket doesn't seem to go out as much as it needs to in the back, but I'll forgive it because it has fur and tassels and lace all in once. So I'll forgive it. <laughs> the Comte Saint-Germain in his beautiful gold embroidered coat and then the waistcoat, which is black with the gold embroidery. Thumbs up yes. for me. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, it's like, this may be my new, you know, backdrop on my computer. Um and so it's like, I love the black and the gold and the the mimicking of the embroidery in opposite colors, or as it were, um, on the on the waistcoat so that, you know, you can make the black pop more. And then somehow, because the embroidery is similar to the stuff that's off, that is color on color on his frock coat, it just makes, it draws the eye more. And then there's the lace at the cuffs and... Um, we're finally seeing, you know, proper 18th century shoes. No offense to Jamie, but he's wearing his boots all the time, and it's driving me bonkers. I think early on he bows when I think it's the Duke of Sandringham is the first guy to come, and I'm is he wearing knee-high boots to a dinner party? I know he's Scottish, but I don't care. You don't, you would not do that. I mean, he no. may as well have horse shit on his shoes. I know. <laughs> Just no, Jamie, no. <laughs> yep. Have to wear the tights and the silly shoes with the heels like everybody else. <laughs> yep. And then what did you think about Bonnie Prince Charlie's outfit? He's definitely rocking some lace this time. Oh yeah. And it's it's appropriate to his character. You know, it's like he very much loved life and wanted the best of everything. So he's got this beautiful velvet coat, and you know, you've got this elaborate lace cravat with um, you know, the black thrown in. And I love the way they've gotten the, you know, the lace on the cuffs to match the lace on the cravat. That's very apropos. And, you know, then, of course, because of the velvet frock coat, he's got to have the satin waistcoat. And, you know, he's even got the bow at the back for his wig. I'm, I'm so happy. I particularly liked um, Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Comte Saint-Germain's wigs in this scene. And I love um, near the end when the Comte is saying he's going to, the they should call the the guards you can really see the the sort of woven edge of the hair right in front which is perfect because um men were wearing wigs and very obvious about it they weren't trying to hide that fact um and it just looks absolutely great uh claire's dress on the other hand is again one of these posing style gowns with a, a back lacing which is the bane of my existence although uh, Terry said in her interview with us that she has now banned backlacing because we picked on it so much. So Aww. hallelujah, we have had a positive effect on the universe. So, little by little, we're getting there. <laughs> so I live for the day when I no longer have to look at backlacing on this show. Um, I think it's beautiful fabric and perfectly in keeping with the style that she has developed that is, you know, different and unique and elegant and more practical and all that. But uh, I can't get past the back lacing. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, it's the sleeves that, you know, keep 
the sleeves and just the plainness of the front of her gown that, you know, they, they fit her character. And um, I know that they fit the, the books, but I'm just kind of like, my brain goes, are we in Jane Eyre? <laughs> totally. Is she actually a sad little governess and we don't know it? Yes. Where's Rochester? Where's Rochester? I did think it was interesting character wise. Uh, they didn't do much with the, the Comtesse Saint-Germain, the, obviously the Count's wife, mm -hmm. but I thought it was interesting um, that her dress was far less impressive than Louise's. And now Louise's, I, I haven't figured out if she's titled. Her name is Louise de Rohan and Rohan is one of the big uh, aristocratic families um, of the 18th century during the time of Marie Antoinette, there's Cardinal Rohan and he's a prince of the blood. So it makes me think she must be somebody. But I thought it was, I mean, character wise, it makes perfect sense why she is the, the most frou-frou and elegant uh, mm -hmm. lady in that scene. But um, the, the historian in me was twitching at the countess sort of, I mean, she's got that nice silver lace, but otherwise I felt meh about her. I mean, I, I didn't dislike her dress. I just thought she should be wearing something more. No, I, I agree. I was sitting there staring at the Count's gorgeous, gorgeous suit, you know, and it's perfect. And as you said, when you get up close to the wig, you can tell that it is a wig because that was very stylish for the 1740s. But it's like, okay, it let's get down to brass tacks. Women were essentially the property of their husbands. And you dressed your wife very well because it reflected well on you that you could dress your wife like that. And it's like, I was like, so did he bring like his maid? <laughs> I wonder if uh, she's maybe the ultra accommodating meek little wife while he's probably out poisoning people and having affairs and doing all of that. Um, that was the only sort of explanation I could come up with. Besides, I mean, obviously, the dynamic between Louise and Bonnie Prince Charlie is key in this scene. And Louise is the big counterpoint to Claire. And so that all makes sense. Most of the, all the other ladies are just sort of backdrop. Exactly. And, um, you know, just moving on, it's like I can't even find the the Comtesse at the at the dinner table here I'm like looking at I was looking at it to like see how the you know if the place settings and all of that um and the array of people's clothing uh but I'm like is she there <laughs> I can't find her she is she's sitting uh she Claire's at one end of the table opposite Jamie and she's got the Comte and Comtesse on either side of her but the Comtesse doesn't get any dialogue so no, and she's just sitting there with her perfect posture. She at least has good posture. That is something that is kind of driving me a little bonkers is that I keep on coming up and adjust people's shoulders. I'm like, no, stand up straight. Absolutely. You're wearing a corset, goddammit. How hard should it be? I know. All right. Well, that's sort of my thoughts. Do you have anything else you wanted to chat about about this episode? Um, No, for this episode, I just, I was very very happy with the menswear and you know um I, i'm glad that my instincts are 100 percent wrong when it comes to the women's wear because like I, I i keep trying and i can't quite tell the difference between a francaise and an anglaise um you can explain it to me i'll forget it tomorrow um <laughs> clearly we need to meld meld our minds into the perfect 18th century brain Yes, yes. Uh, you'll understand how to look at a waistcoat and tell that's 1740s, that's 1760s. <laughs> but 
But well, um, I really loved all of the opportunities to see the array of fashions. Um, and, you know, um, and it, it is a very interesting juxtaposition of, you know, just men and women, you know, uh, Murta and Fergus versus Jamie and the, and then even Jamie versus the Kongs and versus Bonnie Prince Charlie and all of those. It's just, it shows you the full range. And then um, again, with, with the women, you do get, I don't know that you see as much range except maybe in these um, broader shots, like, you know, looking at the dining table where, or like as they're all entering the room, uh, you know, you do get more of um, a range there. But since we've really only got the, the three women Mary, um, Claire, and Louise, you know, I, I suppose it's a little bit more limited because there's fewer women characters, but that's my only complaint is that I'm like, well, it's only three. <laughs> yes, but at least they shagged in this episode because we've been having a dry spell. <laughs> very true, very true. It's like, hello, <laughs> why do you think I'm watching this show? Exactly, for the 18th century, because I love the books. And come on, I want to see some shagging. But we'll have to have you back on the podcast once um, the plot progresses and we end up back in Scotland, which we are going to, I believe, sometime later in this season. So we'd love to have you back. I would love to go. <laughs> Excellent, because again, I know nothing. Okay, I don't know nothing about boys, but I know little about boys. So it will be fabulous to have someone. And Scottish boys is clearly your element. I am very much at home with both of those topics, so. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, well, thanks so much to Brenna for joining us for this podcast. I really appreciate it. And like I said, we'll have her back, which will be great. Um, so you can find a um, lots of screen caps and um, in our blog post uh, recap, which will be up at frockflix.com. Uh, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Frockflix. And until next week, we'll be back with uh, the next episode, recapping it with Sarah back. And I have to do our traditional goodbye, which is bye.